Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. To be an entrepreneur, you have to be a, you have to be a little crazy. And, and many people, you know, would have rightfully so said I was a little crazy for leaving a, a pretty prestigious job at, at a prestigious organization uh, and, and frankly, a pretty significant, you know, to go without a salary, to make a doctor's salary and then say, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to make any salary until we get this going. Uh, it, it takes a, a massive leap of faith. And I'm, I'm not alone in this. Every entrepreneur across the country that does this leap has their own story. And, you know, mine might be a little bit more dramatic than some, but um, no, it, it wasn't figured out. But I, but I did know that it was a massive problem that would have a massive impact. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Experiencing the healthcare system firsthand when his mother got sick inspired Jeremy Fries to solve problems on the business side of healthcare. But a funny thing happened on the way to an administrative career. Jeremy Fries became a doctor, a highly accomplished doctor practicing radiology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Of course, along the way, he managed to pick up a Harvard MBA as well. And a few years ago, tired of the piles of paperwork that took time away from patients, he got back to problem-solving mode and started Verata Health a software company that streamlined the prior authorization process. You know, all the permissions and sign-offs necessary before a doctor can actually perform a medical procedure. And he did it with the help of AI. Verata gained traction quickly, and in December of 2020, the company was acquired by Olive for $120 million. Dr. Fries is now president of payer market for Olive. He continues the work of building the AI of healthcare and now leads a team of 600. This all happened in the middle of a pandemic, so he's never even been to Olive's headquarters in Ohio. We're catching up with Dr. Freeze from his home in Florida, where he lives with his wife and four kids, ranging in age from a seven-month-old to a 16-year-old. But the story begins on a farm in South Dakota. I grew up working on a pig farm, small town, South Dakota. Nice. Did you think you were going to grow up and, and be a farmer? Did you, when did you start thinking about going into medicine? So I come from a family of entrepreneurs and teachers. And so went to University of South Dakota, the academic powerhouse that it is, <laughs> on a football and track scholarship. And was planning on taking over the family businesses when my mother got breast cancer when I was a sophomore. Uh, and that was my first exposure to medicine. And through the process of seeing her struggle through, through that care is when I decided I want to go to medical school. And actually decided at that point that that's when I wanted to go into the administrative side of medicine, the business side of medicine. 
to try to help make the system better for everybody. I wouldn't think a lot of people, especially in college, are thinking, I want to be an administrator. I think that's probably true. (laughs) And I also think that, you know, coming from a family of entrepreneurs and and business people, that that I I was drawn to the fact of solving systemic problems uh, through, I mean, I think capitalism can be a great source for good. And so help, you know, helping the system get better through capitalism is really something that I've I've been wired to do sure. since since that time. What were some of the earliest problems administratively that that you were noticing as you first got exposed to the medical system? Oh boy, I haven't thought about that for a long time. Often. <laughs> you know, I honestly um it's interesting sort of reflect on that now because it really gets to the core of what we're solving at Verada and now at Olive, mm-hmm. there was so much time and angst wasted uh, sharing information among physicians and with payers, and then the delays in care that would happen and the uncertainty as you were waiting for those things to happen, mm-hmm. that um, it, frankly, we, we haven't gotten a whole lot better in that regard you know, over the last 20, 30 years since I started this process and, and now we're really starting to see, I think both um, regulatory and legislative activities that are moving us in that direction, as well as the implementation of, techno- implementation of technology to really kick that off as well. So yeah, I'd say it was really the, it was that point of lack of information sharing yeah. and, uh, and making sure that frankly, patients get the care they need uh, as quickly as possible. Sure. So when you got to Mayo Clinic, which is where you went to medical school, right, were you still, was this kind of still the focus? You're still thinking more about information and and navigating the system than you are actually taking care of patients, I mean, medically speaking, or did things start to change? So I, um, I've applied to MD, MBA programs okay. when I applied to medical school. It tr- um, you know, it turns out that at that time, there were only a handful of them. They've now proliferated because of the recognition that we need to have positions that have some business understanding. Mm-hmm. But there were only a couple at the time, and I was fortunate to get into them. Mayo did not have such a program, but being a, being a Midwestern boy mm-hmm. and, and really recognizing the power of the way Mayo practices medicine, mm-hmm. coupled with the fact that I knew my, you know, I, I, I knew that my mother wasn't going to live through medical school. And so I wanted, mm. you know, wanted to be closer at home. Yeah. That, that really solidified it to me that I was going to do Mayo. And I sort of thought, all right, I'll put my four years in at Mayo and then I'll do the MBA after. And then those four years turned into 20 years and <laughs> uh, a wonderful Mayo career. So it, it's, uh, it, it was, it was what I was thinking about at that time, Allison, that I wanted to head, you know, continue down the administrative side. Yeah. Um, it just, it, I just enjoyed my time at Mayo and stayed there longer than expected. Somewhere along the administrative journey, you happened into radiology and surgery? Minor little detour, huh? So <laughs> uh, it turns out that when you sign up for medical school, you're not just sort of signing up for that four-year stint, but then you have to choose your specialty. <laughs> right. And, 
you know, nobody, you sort of don't think about that when you're a 20 year old kid in college and you say, I'm going to go to medical school or I'm going to go to, you know, dental school or whatever. There's, mm-hmm. there's a whole shtick you have to do after school. <laughs> yeah, just a little so bit. My, yeah. My, my shtick was an additional seven years after medical school of surgery and radiology and interventional radiology. So I was, you know, I got my first doctor job when I was 32 years old uh, and having started it at age 21 at the long haul. For sure. And and I mean, you know, kind of a, I mean, not a, not a minor side hustle to pick up there going into radiology and surgery. Did you, when you were in the early years of that, I mean, did you sort of set the business goals aside? For, don't you kind of have to? I mean, it, that's all consuming. So I loved being a doctor. Yeah. I loved taking care of patients and, 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 so yes, it absolutely was all consuming and it was fantastic. But but I also was able to weave in different activities throughout those years that really, you know, scratched my administrative itch mm-hmm. uh along the way. And so um you know, while my clear focus was taking care of patients and learning how to take care of patients you know there there was there was certainly opportunity along the way to sure. get involved administratively throughout i know that um i mean rochester and and the whole mayo community has been so um involved in you know innovation and and acceleration of ideas and technology around healthcare did that environment help for for your just for your thinking as far as what you wanted to do on the entrepreneurship side it was like a kid in a candy store. It, it it truly is a remarkable place. And I've had a, had the great fortune of being able to practice at other very innovative places in, in, in Boston and elsewhere. There's no place that practices medicine in such a team and collaborative way, truly focused on the patient's needs uh, as it's done in Rochester. And so it really fostered what, what medicine can and should be, but also, you know, highlighted that, that even at probably the most resourced healthcare organization in the country, if not the world, mm-hmm. there's, there's still problems. And, it, and, and, and that stems from this whole, you know, the whole ecosystem of healthcare and just the, you know, just the way, as we talked about earlier, information is shared and, and bills are done, et cetera, that, that even at a place like Mayo, there, there's, an opportunity for improvement, and and so you know what what Mayo does for practitioners is they allow them to focus on taking care of patients and takes care of that administrative mm. hassle with you know through through other you know through other means and systems and people, but but even as a physician you still get exposed to it, and so there's no doubt that it. You know, I'd say the priority at at places like Mayo and others is on innovations around patient care. What what I've always been interested in, and I think, frankly, maybe the biggest opportunity to improve healthcare and take out waste, and and frankly, make sure that patients get the right care, is by administ is by removing the administrative waste, mm-hmm. and and truly allow physicians and nurses and all other care providers to focus on care instead of all this other stuff. And sure. so, even at a place where that's done for you, that was you know that really 
was highlighted for me. So as if Mayo isn't prestigious enough, you also managed to uh, go to Harvard along the way. At what point did that happen? So uh, thank you for that. I went to Harvard. We have to drop Harvard, right? Yeah, well, I don't like to say it because it, kind of, it sounds kind of snooty. No. But um, I, so I went to Harvard Business School after my medical training. And so I went on, uh, Mayo has this really amazing program where really dating back to the Mayo brother days, they would identify um, people, that trainees that they want to maintain within the Mayo system and offer what's called a Mayo Foundation Scholar. That Foundation Scholar is one where they say, go to Paris, go to Boston, go to New York, you know, go to, go to somewhere and learn a new skill the way you know, the, the best of the best are doing things, and then bring that skill back to us in Rochester. And the Mayo Brothers did that really from the beginning, and so that was the genesis of the Foundation Scholarship. I, my foundation scholarship was to go to business school and take that thinking and, and bring it back to our, our uh, fair city in Rochester. Got it. Were, there, were you surrounded by many doctors when you were at Harvard Business School? It, it turns out the no is the answer. <laughs> um, and, and the few that were there, none of them actually, other than one, uh, a, a cardiothoracic surgeon friend, None of them tend to go back to practice, which I did and practiced full-time at Mayo. And so um, for the most part, usually people that go into business school after medicine are saying, I want to go be an investment banker or, or you know, consultant or something else. I went in with the mindset, I want to go, you know, go back into, into practice and really combine those two to, to, do, you know, to do administrative and entrepreneurial things along the way. Okay. Um, and, and did you do any clinical work while you were in Boston, while you were at Harvard? So I, I practiced um, nearly full-time at Bregman Women's Hospital, which wow. is uh, one, of, one of the two Harvard-affiliate hospitals, and lived between the business school and, and the hospital, um, and yeah, just really enjoyed my time in Boston. It was a fantastic city, fantastic place to work and learn, just a ton of innovation and energy for sure. Did you ever get to like take a day off or go out to dinner? So we lived right next to Fenway Park uh-huh. and it was the 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 years that I lived there, the Celtics won the championship, the Red Sox won the championship, the Patriots went 13 and 0 that year and so it was it was a wonderful time to be a sports fan in Boston and <laughs> And, and the great news is, you know, we could open the windows in our, our apartment and hear the roar of Fenway, even though we, you know, it was, tough, it was still tough to get tickets. So, yeah, sure. I mean, there's, <laughs> okay, there's always time for, you got to make time for friends and family. That's right. So you get back to Rochester, you get back to Mayo, you now have a Harvard MBA in addition to all your other training in both business and medicine. Were, was the idea for Verata already crystallizing for you, or what pushed you down that particular path? So I got back to Rochester and really immersed myself in clinical practice and built uh, a really thriving, wonderful practice um, in interventional radiology and had a, a fantastic team of nurses who, you know, help me care for patients, but also help take care of this administrative hassle that, w- that we've been talking about. 
And it was really during that time that I was introduced into this problem of prior authorization. Nobody, frankly, nobody teaches you about the real practice of medicine. It's this, you know, these administrative things you have to do once you're out of training mm-hmm. because you're shielded from that as a trainee for the most part. And so right. that's, that's when I was exposed to this problem that you have to get approval before you can deliver certain kinds of care. And, and so that's when the, the idea of Verata really started, started bubbling up. So it was this prior authorization red tape situation that, that patients encounter, and it also is a hassle on, the, on your side as the medical professional as well. So the, the way, yes, and the way it manifested itself in my practice is every, you know, so every Monday I would show up and on my desk would be a stack of manila folders with patient, you know, patient records in it and an insurance sheet on the top that my nurse would say, you have to fill this piece of paper out. And then you have, you know, then we have to send this information over to Blue Cross United or whoever to get approval so that you can do the surgery, you know, in a, in a few weeks or whenever it be scheduled. And so it was, you know, most of the work, frankly, was, was my nurses and I, and, 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 you know, we took it on ourselves to try to shield the patients as best as we could. Okay. So, so you're thinking this, there should be an easier, simpler way technology exists. I, I, I've, I've seen your quote where you talked about um, Elon Musk, and if we can have a, a self-driving car, we should be able to have uh, some sort of system in place to handle prior authorization. We have so much technology in healthcare, and yet some of the basic blocking and tackling things that we see in other industries, marketing, manufacturing, cars, space, uh, that, that frankly, for a variety of reasons, we haven't really taken hold of fully in healthcare. And there are a lot of reasons behind that. But, um, but yes, there's, you know, we don't, it's, you don't need to reinvent the wheel on much of this. It's, it's adopting well-known technology in other industries and bringing it, bringing it into our you know, healthcare ecosystem. So how did you take that idea and start thinking about an actual business? Well, it took me a long time, uh, to be frank. And so, you know, despite being exposed to the problem then, I didn't do anything with it for almost a decade. Hmm. And so, you know, spent a long time at Mayo doing a variety of other really wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful jobs. And, um, really crystallized on the fact that this is something that I wanted to to try to tackle for the industry, not until 2016. Hmm. And so left um, left Mayo in the end of 2016 and then, you know, did the did the legwork to find a team and get get funding and all that stuff uh, to start the company in 2017. It's one thing to know that there's a problem, and it's kind of amazing to think that in that whole decade between first thinking about this and doing something about it, nothing happened to improve it. Um, but it's one thing to have that idea. It's another thing to say, I know how to fix it. Did, when you left Mayo, did you know what kind of team you needed, what you were going to actually do? So to be an entrepreneur, you have to be a, you have to be a little crazy. And, and many people you know, would have rightfully so said I was a little crazy for leaving a, a pretty prestigious job at, at a prestigious organization right. uh, and, and frankly, a, 
pretty significant, you know, to go without a salary right. to make a doctor's salary and then say, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to make any salary until we get this going. Uh, it, it takes a, a massive leap of faith and I'm, I'm not alone in this. Every entrepreneur across the country that does this leap has their own story. And, you know, mine might be a little bit more dramatic than some, but um, no, it, it wasn't figured out, but I, but I did know that it was a massive problem that would have a massive impact on, you know, not just the 10 patients that I saw every day as a practicing clinician, but the potential to have an impact on millions of patients across the United States uh, with the, and that, that was the motivation. And I knew that it, it was a very, it hadn't been solved in 30 years, but it was a solvable problem. And I didn't know how it was going to be solved. And frankly, we're, you know, we're still in the throes of solving it, but we're making great headway. And, and that's the gift of an entrepreneur, the ability to say, this is a little crazy, but I know it can be done. When we get back, how Jeremy went about solving the headache that is prior authorization through AI technology. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank providing a means to a dream. When we left off, Jeremy had made the major decision to step away from practicing medicine full-time to become an entrepreneur. How did he do it? Take a listen. So what was the breakthrough? Did you go to um, computer programmers or what kind of team did you assemble and, and what did you figure out? What Explain what Verada Health was. So we were... Uh, we were a technology platform that automates this process of understanding as a prior auth needed, what are the rules that each payer sets to say it's not only needed, but this is the clinical information that you need, connects into the electronic medical record, pulls the appropriate information specific for that payer, builds that clinical bundle. So that work that my nurse was doing when she put the manila folders on my desk, that's what we built software to do. And then the same, it turns out, and this, frankly, it was this learning that happened a decade later that crystallized the opportunity around Verada. As providers, we you know, oftentimes see the payer as the, the problem uh, in, in, this, in this prior authorization challenge. It turns out that it's an equal problem for payers. And they have thousands of nurses, you know, sitting in Eden Prairie and, and every, you know, every payer across the country that are, that are accepting those faxes that my nurses would send over and then have to make a decision. And so we built technology that solves it for both providers and payers, as we like to say, on both ends of the fax machine. And that was, that was the innovation that, frankly, you know, the team came up with. Uh, this was definitely not a, a one-person show. It was, it was a, fan, a, a wickedly talented group of technologists, of healthcare people, of business people, of finance people that it takes to pull something like this off. So uh, I'm 
I'm only one one cog in the wheel. How did you fund it in the early days? How did you get it off the ground? How did you hire all the staff? So you you know like like most boots like most uh, entrepreneurial ventures, we we bootstrapped it with founders capital, and so you know we'd all had a little success in life, and so put our own money in for the first couple of years and built a team of about 20 people with that with that money. And, you know, we all took tiny little salaries and, and, you know, um, built the genesis of a product that we proved that it worked with that early money. And then it was at that point when we kind of went out to the investor community with our hands open and said, here's, here's what we're going to go do. And, you know, this is the team that, that that's going to go do it. And, and we had some credibility and we're able to be successful in that process. Once you had the funding and you had the product, then don't you have to convince all the whole complicated healthcare system to adopt the product? How did that go? So if there's if any a sort of same story, any entrepreneurial venture, you start by missionary selling. And so, you know, CEO is, is generally needs to be your best salesperson. And so we were, I was on the road and, you know, we, we, are fortunate that we have really wonderful care ecosystem um, in Minnesota. And because I'd you know, been in the business for a decade, new people across the country. And so, you, you know, you start by talking to people that know and trust you. And, and because of that trust, you know, we, we got some early innovators to jump on and say, well, let's work on this together. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, you know, that was really the, building the early building blocks to build out a sales team that, you know, we now have customers across the country. Was there any point in those early days when you were in your car and you're out selling that you thought, I'm a doctor. I could be like at the Mayo Clinic right now making important decisions and seeing patients. Did you have any of that or did you just love the whole entrepreneurial thing so much? Well, it was, I mean, yes is the answer. (laughs) And, And so... Um, I, I, I truly loved my team and the problem that we were solving. And I, it was, you know, it was extremely engaging and I, and I, and I loved everything we were doing at Verata, but I, I hadn't given up clinical practice. So I, I was still practicing, you know, maybe a day a week. I transitioned my practice to the university of Minnesota. And so I was practicing there for a mm. while as well as, uh, uh, um, center for diagnostic imaging for a little bit. And so we, you know, we've, I still had my um, opportunity to help care for patients, and you know, I I, I just lo- also loved working at those organizations. Got it. Was there a, a certain turning point or a moment when you knew Verada was going to work? That this was this platform was going to be successful? Oh, that's a fun question. Was there a, a defining moment? You know. It's a, it's a series of tiny little defining moments mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it, every, everything along the way felt like two steps forward, one step back. And in fact, even on any given day, it felt like two steps forward one, and one step back. I don't think I could point to a single moment that I, that I felt like, you know, oh, it worked, you know, okay, the, the company's going to work, the product's going to work. Um, of course, first launch day when, you know, the, the first time a, you know, a hospital uses your software is a pretty special day. But then there are a whole bunch of, you know, little special days when 
you're doing things that hadn't hadn't been done before. So that I mean that's that's the fun part of entrepreneurship. It's uh it's a it's a slow build. It's mm-hmm. definitely a slow build. Was did you ever have time this has all gone relatively fast. I don't know if it seems that way for you, but it's sort of like all of a sudden it's like wow, this is this is a startup to have on your radar and you're raising money and building a team and getting some traction and then you were acquired. Was there a point um, in any of that where you could kind of sit back and say, okay, this is this is running smoothly or has it been just a constant build? I don't feel like I've still had an opportunity to sit back and say, wow, this, is, this was a success. Um, there's, a, there's a really great phrase that, you know, um, you know, this, this startup has been, a, it has been an overnight success after, you know, after 10 years right. or after three years or five. So it, it feels like it, it never feels as fast when you're the one in the weeds and, and, and carrying it through. Having said that, we were, we did a lot of things right. We we're also, you know, very, very fortunate. And, and, and yes, it, what we were able to achieve at Verado is generally faster than, than most startups. Uh, and, and three, four years is, is a pretty quick turn on, uh, in the entrepreneurial world, but we, it, you know, that was three or four years without a vacation. And, and I know my team was working their tail off that, that whole time. I read that you were not looking to be acquired. Is that really true? That wasn't in yeah, the back that, of your that, head? That's definitely true. No, we, we, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you need to start a business and run a business as if you're going to run it for 30 years. And I truly believed then that, and I, I still believe this now, that's why we chose Olive as our acquirer, that this is a, this is a multi-billion dollar problem that, um, you know, will take decades to truly solve. And, and, and so, no, we were, we were, you know, we were at the phase where we were looking to raise another round of capital mm-hmm. um, to, to fuel the growth that we were seeing in the market. And, and because of that success, people started knocking to say, you know, would you be, would you be open to an acquisition? And my answer was always, well, we're not looking to be sold, but you're happy, you know, we're, we're happy to entertain an offer that, you know, that you want to pull together. And, and I think you also need to recognize as an entrepreneur that there's a, my goal was always to build the platform that would have an impact on millions of patients. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's some time when it's in, you know, the, the mission's best interest to do it yourself. And, and, and there's, there's a time when it's in the mission's best interest to latch on to another rocket ship that, uh, that has more capital, more people, more reach to really get your product in the hands of, of people across the country. And so that was, that was the enticing part about Olive and, and, and the reason we decided to go down the acquisition path. You were already working with Olive, is that right? Yeah, so we were business partners for about, I don't know, six months before the acquisition. It was because of the, the, the positive traction that we had across the country. And, and frankly, I think the recognition of that positive traction that if we were, you know, if we were going to raise more money, then that just means the, you know, the amount that someone would need to acquire us would be that much more. And so the decision was, you know, made that it made more sense to pay up 
for the company now rather than to wait in, you know, another couple of years, which would have been a more typical timing. Sure. Leading up to the acquisition, I mean, how widespread was Verata? How how many hospital systems or, or medical systems were using the product, the software? Yeah, we we were we were just really fortunate and had uh, a great group of of folks both in Minnesota um, and then across, I'd say, the Midwest and the Eastern Seaboard that were that were using our platform in a variety of ways, and, and so you know. Tens of thousands of physicians were were on the platform, and uh, you know, it, you you always you always sort of felt like there was more that you know that we could do, and we were having a, a lot of you know a lot of fun and and a really interesting pipeline, and and that has just been accelerated after after the acquisition, which has been and how a lot big, of fun to be a part of. How big was your staff? We were about 60 people scattered across uh, Florida, Boston, or predominantly in Florida, Boston, and Minnesota. But we had we had 60 about 60 folks in 14 different states, and so we were we we were a Zoom company before that before this crazy COVID thing forced everyone to be a Zoom company. And was that about just finding the the technical talent that you needed, or how did it happen that way? We always ha- and, uh, had the mentality of sort of best best people was more important than location, mm-hmm. and that was not the thinking of many of our friends uh, in Silicon Valley, and and the belief from that investor community that everyone needs to be in the valley and and you know go into the office to have beers together and all, and whatever. So, you know, we, we as a um, uh, frugal Midwestern company felt that it was more important to get, you know, really hardworking, uh, values-oriented folks that really believed in the mission. And I, frankly, we didn't care if they were in, you know, uh, Sheboygan or Orlando or, or Minnesota. Hmm. Do you so think that... It turns out that most of our team was actually in, was based in Orlando. Oh, wow. Do you think that made it easier for you this this past year? I mean, you didn't really have that learning curve with Zoom and and with being remote. Uh, that is that is definitely true. And then I'll also share that um, the uh, the the team at Olive that we started work you know as we started working together really came to fruition during COVID, mm-hmm. and so I, I've actually. We did the entire partnership and acquisition without having met a single one of my Olive colleagues in person. Wow. Have you ever been to Olive's headquarters in Ohio? No. no. <laughs> Do you want to no. go? Will you go? Absolutely. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I'd be the only one there. I'd be, I'd be sitting empty. Right. But, right. Um, so there's actually uh, the Wall Street Journal did an article on this topic with us. Because, you know, these deals are continuing to happen and you're seeing you know, deals proliferate during this time of COVID. And, it, you know, we, we, because we were, to your initial question, Allison, because we were a Zoom company before and figured out how to develop relationships, run a business, you know, sell product, build product, uh, you know, all remotely, it, it sort of, we've just continued down that path um, after this, this silly virus has been 
throwing everybody up in arms. Right. Um, any downside, just one more question on the remote part of it, especially with the acquisition. And I mean, now you are an employee of Olive, along with your entire team, we should say, right? Everybody from Verata yeah. went to Olive. Yep. We, we all came over, um, you know, with, within the acquisition there, there's always a little bit of attrition, but, um, it, you know, it's, it's, so yes, I, we're all we're all now employees of Olive, um, and and still scattered across the country. I feel like one of the questions right now, not to not to go off on too much of a tangent, but one of the things that's being discussed is you know the the missing piece of collaboration and culture, and how do you build an office or a company culture when people are in different places and maybe haven't even ever met in person? So, what is your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, it, certainly the. Well, honestly, I sort of see two two big challenges. One is is this you know personal collaboration um, and, and the interpersonal stuff, and then the other one is it's really I mean we're seeing a ton of burnout because people are just going back to back to back on these Zoom meetings, you know, all day and uh, and all night, frankly, that there, you know, there's less of a delineation between I'm going into the office and then I'm leaving the office mm-hmm. to, you know, go have dinner with my family or whatever. And right. so it, the days trickle into being longer. So on that first front on the collaboration piece, you know, we had what we call water cooler Fridays. And so even though we had people in 14 different States, we would do a zoom and say, you know, the only rule here is that you can't talk about work. <laughs> and, you know, some people would bring, bring a beverage, some wouldn't, and then we'd break into smaller groups and, and just have conversation. And so you kind of, you have to be more thoughtful and almost forceful around the collaboration piece um, to, you know, to try to facilitate that. And then I think, you know, this burnout one is, is a real issue across the country that companies need to be thoughtful about and frankly, put the brakes on work a little bit so that, we can all, you know, we can all survive and thrive mm-hmm. uh, professionally in this right. in this time. Right. So let's talk about Olive. Um, talk a little bit about what Olive does and why they became a, a perfect partner for Verata. So Olive was essentially uh, Verata on steroids a few years further down the path than we were, and so it it. It became uh, very clear and, and sort of a match made in heaven, really from the, frankly, the first conversation that Olive CEO, Sean Lane and I spoke. And we sort of even joked in that first conversation, you know, at some point down the road, either I'm going to acquire you or you're going to acquire me. We'll, you know, we'll see who grows, mm-hmm. see, you know, see how that, how that plays out. So it really from the beginning felt like uh, a, a, really, a really positive situation for both of us. Olive is an artificial intelligence and automation company that helps tackle the biggest administrative problems, historically um, focused on the provider side, just like we also had at Rada, initially focused on the provider side, recognizing that you have to get a significant provider footprint to, to really get the attention of and, and, and then, as we say, solve it on both sides of the fax machine. And so... It was the combination of a cultural fit in the way we work, the way we, you know, the kind of people that we want to work with and hire, 
and this sort of remote, you know, this remote mentality that Olive had, just like we had at Verata, the, the cultural piece was a perfect fit. And then this vision of where we were going uh, independently became very clear that we could both get there a whole lot faster if we were together. Uh, and that, that realization is what both solidified it for Sean and myself. And it's, um, it, it, it's been, it's, I mean, it's crazy to think it's almost been six months now and it's been, it's been exactly what we had hoped. So 120 million, is that what they paid for Verata? So the, the, the number did, did get, did get leaked and published. <laughs> and so I can confirm that, uh, that, that in fact, it wasn't our intent to let that out, but yes, it was 120 million. Well, we media types, we love those big numbers and headlines. Yeah. Um, how did that feel? Well, um, I, I mean, it, 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 frankly, the success is humbling and the, I'm just really proud of what the team was able to accomplish in such a short time. It's also a recognition of a massive problem that we, you know, that we built something that had impact, not only what we'd already built, but what, you know, what was still to come. Mm -hmm. And, and so it, it, uh, it, it certainly, uh, you know, felt good, but as, as I like to say, it, it was, Time to fill the coffee mug, not the champagne flutes, because the work is the the fun work is really just still still kicking off. Sure. So you are now a president um, at Olive. What is your day to day like? How different is it? Pandemic aside, how different is it being an employee of Olive versus a founder of Verata? So. It's different leading a team of 600 than it is a team of 60, mm -hmm. and um, and it's also wonderful to have a a new set of investors, a new set of of people that believe in the same vision that we were after. And so, you know, the truth is, um, I I feel blessed to have an you know a whole new network of people that are on the same mission that, that we were on at Verata. And, and, and because of the, you know, great alignment at the beginning and the cultural fit in, in, in many ways, it, it feels just like uh, a continuation of, of Verata on steroids. Hmm. That's great. Um, and are you practicing medicine at all right now? No, this is, this is, um, you know, we're, we've, we've had, had some success. And so running, Running a, a team of six hundred, a uh, couple billion dollar company is is a is a full time job. Yeah, well, you've had a lot of full time jobs, so I just I had to ask: do you do you miss it at all? Do you see yourself going back to that at some point? I uh, I love what I do, and I love practicing medicine, and I recognize that right now it's not in the cars to do it. Um. My wife asked the same question. If that's if you know, I'll I'll pick it back up at some point. I I don't know honestly. It's um I would love to be able to practice, and I keep all of my licenses and CME and everything active because you just you never know how life goes. Right, right. 
I, I yeah, I mean, the licenses are one side. Is it like is it like riding a bike? I mean, can you just jump back into to radiology or <laughs> doing procedures? Well, I'd be very thoughtful on <laughs> what I do jump back in. Uh, you know, I wouldn't jump back into doing the high end stuff I I was doing at you know my previous practice. Yeah. And sort of, you know, stick with bread and butter stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it is, you know, I, I had the 10,000 reps in. And so it is kind <laughs> of like riding a bike. And I, you know, I felt like I was pretty good at, at being a doctor. And I think I, I'd feel I'd feel great about taking care of patients if I started again. Today. Yeah, I'd feel pretty comfortable with you, too, I think. Um, so, so the, there's been so much talk about what the pandemic has done to accelerate our thinking as far as um, telehealth and, you know, a lot of the, the business side of medicine. Has it exposed new problems that you want to solve or, or do you see what you're doing moving faster because of COVID? I feel, unfortunately, that there are some very significant haves and have nots in this, in this COVID pandemic. Yep. One, you know, it, one of the positives is the way our healthcare system has um, embraced a new way of working in in this environment. And so it's a combination, like you said, Allison, of the adoption of telehealth and uh, and a variety of other technologies. And so our business is is one that that has accelerated because of the pandemic and a recognition that, you know, we we healthcare systems and payers can't have these thousands of people and administrators sitting in, you know, sitting in close quarters in hospitals working together, and we need to be able to do more with less. Mm-hmm. And so, because of the financial strain that providers felt, there was a there was an appetite to you know to bring in technology to help solve problems that previously were being solved by a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, w- you know, w- we have seen a range of accelerated uh, technologies being adopted across the country because of, frankly, because of what you just said, Allison. So as an entrepreneur, I realize you definitely have your hands full with, with what you're currently working on. But do you find yourself also jotting down ideas for other problems you'd like to solve? So unfortunately, there's no shortage of, of challenges that we face in healthcare. I, I, I feel right now just like I, I felt at Mayo, which is I feel like, you know, this, I have the great fortune to be a, at a platform company that has the opportunity to have an impact and, and, and solve these problems um, in, in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. And so Certainly, the notebook exists, but it's a it's a wide open notebook for my that I'm in partnership with my colleagues at Olive to yeah. to solve. And so it's we'll, we'll, we're tackling them one at a time. When you think back to the boy on the pig farm in South Dakota, I mean, could you ever have imagined that this is the the level you'll be working at and the experience you would have? probably didn't know that this world existed when I was, you know, in a hundred degree heat shoveling something that I, I won't say <laughs> on the air. Um, so no. And, and I, I also just feel very fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've had 
And, and frankly, there's, there's a whole lot, there's a whole lot more to be done. And I think, you know, when I think about, um, got, uh, four fantastic little, little rugrat kids running around the freeze house. So when I think about, you know, what, you know, what healthcare is going to look like for them over, over their lifetime, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's so much more that we can do. And I'm just really looking forward to not having any idea what that looks like in mm-hmm. a decade or two decades from now and trying, you know, trying to help shape that. It's fun to think about. I mean, if there is one um, positive out of the, the last year and what we've experienced and, and what we've learned good and bad about healthcare. I mean, what do you what do you take away from from this year that we've gone through? And obviously, it's been crazy for you in particular. But um, where do you think we we go from here? What do you, what's on your mind as far as healthcare innovation? Well, I think um, we have an unprecedented opportunity to break down some of these barriers that we've seen that were roadblocks to innovation in healthcare and the and you know, these both regulatory and I'll just call them system adoption problems that bring in these technologies that, you know, we talked about earlier that exist in other other industries that this newfound appetite and willingness to do things a little differently, not even whole not even whole scale change differently, but to do a little differently and start to start to bring in these uh, incremental innovations so that we can really have a big impact. And I, one of the phrases that um, by one of my mentors, the, who's now the CEO of Mayo, uh, likes to say is, think big, start small. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's, what we, that's what we try to do, to think about what, you know, how, how could this be done in a totally different way and what are the small incremental steps that we could do to start that process to get us there. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Fries, for sharing your story with us. It's truly inspiring and exciting. Thank you. It's been, it's been great to be with you, Allison. Wish everybody the best and stay happy and healthy. Well, it's an amazing and fast success story, what Dr. Fries has done with Verada and is now doing with Olive. What is the impact on the technology on healthcare? For some perspective, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Dan McLaughlin is the Senior Executive Fellow in the College of Business. Dan, thanks for returning to the show. We always appreciate your insights. Thanks, Allison. Um, So you heard Dr. Freeze. I mean, you know, as if it isn't enough to be a successful physician at Mayo, he then goes on and has this successful career as an entrepreneur. Talking about the, um, you know, prior authorization and all of this administrative stuff, what do you think? How big of an impact can this have? I know you're always looking and studying the healthcare industry from this admin side. Well, I was really impressed with this company, and um, it hit two areas that I'm kind of interested in, both in research and some of the stuff we teach our students, which is, first of all, why are the healthcare insurance companies doing these things, and um, why do you have this whole prior authorization system? Hmm. And the truth is, throughout the country, there's been a problem historically of, of what's called overtreatment or ineffective care. In other words, too much care or not enough care or the wrong care. And so insurance companies don't want to pay for that. So they've set up this very complicated system. Um, and the, um, the result is you get a lot of people on the other end that have to fill out all these forms and, 
as Dr. Fries was talking about, he had to sit at his desk and fill out a bunch of forms for insurance companies. So that's an administrative cost. Interestingly, the Institute of Medicine does these studies every couple of years about the cost of waste. And that first one, the overtreatment, undertreatment is $100 billion a year of waste. Mm. And administrative complexity, all these complicated systems is $265 billion a year. So this is a real opportunity and it's very exciting to use new emerging technology tools such as AI to make this easier and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, the other thing that, that jumped out, and we talked about this a little bit with Dr. Freeze, is just how unusual it is to be a, a practicing medical doctor, an experienced doctor in an MBA program. In your classrooms at St. Thomas, have you seen much of that? Yes, we do. Interestingly, our healthcare MBA program has had physicians over the years, and actually an increasing number of physicians are enrolling in that program. And on the first class, we sometimes ask all every all the students, why are they here? And a number of the doctors say exactly the same thing. He said, you know, I was so frustrated in my practice about all this administrative stuff. I want to figure out how this stuff really works and fix it. So um, that's a common theme for a lot of physician administrators as they move from the clinical world to the administrative world. I suppose, I mean, what better training could there be to solve an administrative problem than seeing how it impacts your work? Yes, yes, and it's exciting. And now with all the new um, emerging technologies, it's uh, actually, you can apply some of the same kind of clinical skills about diagnosis and treatment, figure out the problem and treat it with a computer system um, that they've used clinically, they can start using with computers. And that's why um, we have a grant from the GHR Foundation to teach a lot of the emerging technologies throughout the College of Business. And it's exciting to be able to use those tools with our students. That's great. Generally, do doctors make good business students? You can be honest, Dan. No one's listening. <laughs> yes. They, they, they're, very, they're very intense. I've discovered that. I bet um, they are. But they're wonderful students, and, um, and uh, they really enjoy the business aspects of it. And um, some of them get different parts of it they get pretty excited about, but they're, they're great students. And they have been, you know, I came from the hospital world myself, and uh, they're wonderful colleagues in the healthcare system as well. I think we all benefit when there's more of that moving back and forth between worlds. You don't have to stay in one box anymore. You can do multiple things. Right. I'm impressed with the number of physicians that are alumni that have gone on to do all kinds of different things like this physician did. That's great. Well, thank you for the perspective. As always, Dan McLaughlin, we love having you on the show. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to learn more about By All Means, as always, you can go to tcbmag.com slash byallmeans. Thanks so much for listening. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Mm-hmm.